Welcome to Sunday Mornings from Heritage Baptist Church in Ashland, Ohio. Each week, we bring you expository and practical teaching straight from God's Word. And now, here's Pastor Ben. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Today we're going to be back in the same passage that we looked at in depth last week, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6, the title again, A Frank Discussion on Salvation. Today is part two of two looking at this passage. We're picking up where we left off last week, and in just a minute I'm going to offer a very quick uh, two-minute review of what we looked at last week because we covered a lot of information. And obviously, if you were here last week, the amount of discussion that was generated was certainly certainly warming to my heart and that you guys demonstrated an understanding of the material. You were challenged by the questions. You pushed back on certain points to challenge me, and I loved all of that. We're going to continue in that vein because I think it's not just essential to understand the rest of Ephesians by understanding how Paul opens the book, but also the whole of Scripture itself as it relates to and regards salvation. With that being said, let's ask the Lord to bless our message by reading uh, Corinthians, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just allow us to continue with the same energy and enthusiasm that we had last week, looking at this wonderful passage where Paul does so much to explain the nature of how our salvation works. I pray, Lord, that you would keep me humble and keep me apart from any agenda that is contrary to what you would have me teach, and that you would just open our hearts and minds, allow us to drink deeply of this letter this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we began last week's message by asking this question, and these were all relevant to the passage as we studied it. Why should we offer praise to God? Paul tells us in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I offered this as my paraphrase. The reason that we should give praise to God is because what this verse tells us is that we are to give blessings to God because he has given access to every spiritual blessing because of the access to God that Christ gives us. That's where we began our discussion last week. So it's right for us to praise God because he has opened up the floodgates of blessing to us by having access to the Father through Jesus the Son. The next question that comes from Paul's passage then is, well, how did this blessing occur? Paul writes, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then I offered this paraphrase. What we see here is that Jesus chose us before he even created the world we live in. We were on his radar long before he was on ours. He did this for a very specific reason. The point and purpose of us being saved is that we would become holy and blameless at judgment because of Jesus' love for us. And I think, Dan, it was you that asked the question, is it more correct to say Jesus or to say the Father chose us? And after thinking about your question, I I think it probably would be more appropriate to say the Father chose us, his means of choosing us, the way that we were chosen, the way that we come into grace is, of course, through Jesus' Son. 
So then I asked this very important question, and this is where our discussion really, really kind of took off. I asked the question then, if that's true, if we look at these verses and we say it's very difficult to look at these verses and come away with the conclusion, humans choose Jesus. It's very easy to come away with the conclusion that God or Jesus chooses humans. So then I asked the question, well, why in the world do so many Christians, I'm not talking about non-believers here, as Mark was good to remind us last week, this is a letter written by Paul to the church at Ephesus. It is not an evangelistic letter. He's not trying to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. He is assuming that they already believe that Jesus is the Christ. And what he's trying to explain to them in the very first few sentences of his letter is how that salvation actually occurred. So I put this question up there. How is it that Christians insist that salvation is our decision to choose Jesus? And we came up with some ideas. We talked about, well, perhaps people are just ignorant of what Scripture actually says. You and I both know we know many people who proclaim to be Christians who do not know very much, if anything, about what Scripture actually says. And that can be very problematic, of course. So another idea that we tossed about is the idea that these people may be too prideful to consider that they're incorrect in their theology and understanding. This is a big one. Jared, I think you brought this up. They're terrified by the idea that they are not in control. You want to take away, you want to make a human nervous, take away the idea that they're in control, even if, as we discussed in Sunday school, even if that control is only the illusion of control. I then opened the floor and I said, okay, what are some other reasons why we insist that we choose God? And we talked about maybe the way somebody was taught. We talked about maybe circumstances in that person's environment that led them to ne never even be able to consider a different perspective. Rhonda, you have a thought? We still have to obey and, and accept it to a certain degree. You, I, yeah, I, I agree. What uh, are you saying that that's... That's, and, and that that's where they get the idea that we choose him? Okay, the idea that maybe it's a more of a workspace salvation, that if I fill out these requirements, then I am approved. Sure, that, that, gets, that muddies the waters up a, a, a bit as well. So the next necessary progression, this was the last thing we covered last week, was, okay, then what was the method and the reasoning by how God chose who he chose? And I asked the question, specific to this particular verse only, how did God choose you and not your neighbor. We look at what verse five says, and verse five says, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And here's my paraphrase of that passage. Before we did anything, in fact, before we even existed, Jesus appointed us to be adopted into the family of God by calling, and it would not be incorrect to use the term wooing or drawing us to himself. He chose who he chose because it pleased him to do so. And that sentence right there is where a lot of people get really hung up. It says very clearly, if you look at what Paul writes there, according to the good pleasure of his will. He did this motivated by the good pleasure of his will. Jesus chose some by the mere pleasure of his will. He chose some, to put it in very human terms, according to what would make him happy. Now, we got to the very edge of it this week, but... 
This is where we're going to have some real fun because I'm going to allow you to offer either objections that you have or objections that you have heard other people have about this very concept. And the number one thing that we said when we kind of closed down last week, I asked this question. I said, how many of you say there's part of you that's, that's, that's turning and twisting and your heart of hearts is saying this, this isn't fair. This is not fair. And that's where I struggle with this. How many of you would say, um, at some point in my life, I've either wrestled with that question myself or I certainly know people who have. Show of hands. Okay, almost everyone in the room, this is a ubiquitous concern. What is your response to somebody reading Paul's words here that don't seem to suggest, they absolutely teach us that God chooses us before the foundations of the world, before we have done anything right or wrong or good or bad, according to his pleasure? What is your response to somebody who at that point says, well, that's not fair. Brad? I would say Paul's use of the word adoption when he adopts us, if every child and every that doesn't have a parent wanted to be adopted, they would go be adopted, to, to use an illustration. Oh, that's a really good illustration, okay. Uh, so by that logic, it's the idea that we ought to celebrate that some are recovered. Okay, Andy? I guess my question then is why do you think it should be fair? Or what makes you think that the world is fair and equal for everybody? Parents, how many times have you told your children when they say that's not fair, your response is three very simple words, life isn't fair, right? We teach that, we teach that to our kids, but then we get offended when, when we learn the same lesson from God. I almost never do this. I don't know if I've done this in 20 years at this church, but I put the same quote purposefully on the bulletin two weeks in a row. Uh, there is a Christian, incredibly theologically apt Christian rap artist. So if you're not into rap, don't listen to his music. You won't, you won't enjoy it. Named Lecrae. And from his song, Truth, now you'll have to forgive the language. It's written a bit in an urban language. But he says, in the lyric of the song, Truth, he says, but some will say, how can God exist when all the evil stuff in the world keep persisting? Basically, this isn't fair. We have a broken world. How can God exist if we have a broken world? And his response in the song is, you're asking the wrong question. The right question is, why has God not let you feel the wrath of your sin? So part of my answer, it's not my only answer, but part of my answer to this isn't fair is the idea of, well, what's fair is hell for everyone because we've all sinned. Why is it that he has saved you? What isn't fair is that anyone is saved at all. Is Christ choosing the church or choosing the elect or choosing the predestined or choosing you or I as Christians? Is that any different than what we see in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis when Abram, not Abraham, Abram is out basically cutting his lawn living in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is a polytheistic, pagan-worshipping culture, and God comes to him and doesn't say, hey, Abraham, how would you like to be the father of a great nation? That's not what he says. He says, you will be the father of a great nation. In fact, look at the stars. Your descendants will outnumber these stars. Now, we can get into a long discussion as to how both Abram and Sarah respond to that, 
because they, they, they don't accept it right away. They think it's crazy. They're both advanced in age. They don't think that this is possible, but God absolutely accomplishes his will. And my point is there's a perfect parallel between the method of God choosing and maintaining Israel and the way God chose and maintained the church. In other words, this is not new information. The character of God is not suddenly changed. He is doing the same things that he has always done. So my number one reaction to this isn't fair is you're right, it's not fair. What's fair is that we all get what we deserve and we all deserve hell. The fact that anyone at all is saved is an amplification of God's grace. Why he chooses who he chooses and does not choose others that he does not choose, that's a question we're going to deal with at the end of the sermon today because we were kind of on the edge of it last week and I didn't want to give too much away. Let me offer another objection and then I'll, I'll offer a floor if you guys have a, a third objection. But here's the two most common objections I hear. The first one is, this isn't fair. The second one is, well, okay, in terms of sharing the gospel, why do you even bother? Why do you even bother sharing the gospel? If God's just gonna choose who he wants to save anyway, why in the world do we even go out and evangelize and share the gospel with people? Has anybody heard this response before? Anybody heard this argument? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. It's one I need to answer for you. Well. My response to that is this. He does choose who he wants, but the way he sends out the message is through us. We do not know who the predestined are. We do not know who the elect are. We do not know who the saved will be. We are not given that information. Nowhere in scripture does it tell us to go and gather the elect. Scripture tells us, and probably the most famous example is Jesus as he's ascending. He tells the disciples, go to the very ends of the earth. Go to everyone. He doesn't say everybody's going to accept it. He doesn't say everybody's going to be saved. In fact, he gives very explicit instruction throughout his ministry as what we are to do to people if they are uh, not wanting to hear us, if they are pushing us away, if they are becoming enemies of the gospel message, I can think of two examples off the top of my head. The first one is when he sends out the 70 and he tells them to do what as they're leaving a town who will not receive them? Shake the dust off your feet as a sign of judgment against them. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those towns who reject me. Wow. Secondly, we don't bring this one up a whole lot, but what about Matthew 7? Just a few verses after Jesus says, uh, judge lest not you be judged, for the same measure of judgment that you use will be used unto you. He says, do not cast your pearls before swine or give what is holy to dogs. He tells you, you do not need to bang your head against a wall against an unresponsive person to the gospel, somebody who's oppositional to it. He says, move on from them. Do not take your pearls, the holiest thing that you have, the best of what you have, do not give them to pigs. He says, if they're being pigs, if they're being dogs, do not entertain them. Move on to a more receptive audience. What we must understand, the theological truth here is this. Those who respond to this message with brokenness and repentance and surrender their lives to Jesus, those are the predestined. Those who endure, John would say in, in 1 John, how do we know those who are among us? How do we know who's really saved? Those who abide with us, those who remain with us. We've all known people who have come in and out of our lives, in and out of our church, that at some season in their life, they have professed that they knew Jesus. Well, one of the litmus tests is, well, where are they in five years? Where are they in 10 years? Are they, are, do they have anything to do with God? Do they have anything to do with Jesus? Or have they summarily dismissed this? If they've dismissed it, chances are very good they never were truly saved to begin with. They had a false 
conversion. Any other objections that we can think of or that we want to feel, whoa, only five. Okay, Nate, we'll start in the back with you. I think a lot of people object to this idea because it doesn't reconcile with society's view of the nature of God, that it's, he's a loving, and right. why, how can he possibly not give someone the opportunity for heaven? Yeah. It's almost like they reduce God down to somewhat of a Santa Claus figure, that there's a naughty and nice list, and you can earn your way on one of these other Right. Right. Uh, that's a really, really good objection. There's a couple different ways to handle that. I think I'll lean on what Jared was teaching us this morning from Romans 1. Paul says in Romans 1 that, that God is clear to us. The, the, the nature and creation of God makes it clear that a God exists. We have chosen to suppress the truth to worship man-made idols. And whether that man-made idol is a statue, or it's the God of money, or it's the God of your marriage, or it's the God of your career, whatever that is, that's the thing that we worship. That's the thing that we give our lives and our energy over to. Paul says what he says in Romans chapter 1 to come to this conclusion, men are without excuse. Men are without excuse, okay? God is clear. You just need to look around, open your eyes, and stop rationalizing God away, and he is clear. Andy. Um, similar to Nate, basically, the, the whole idea of God is love, and how can he turn away any one of his creation sure. um, without, accept, you know, without just accepting everybody if he's loving that way, you know, I think that's a, this day and age, that's a hard thing to accept. Mm -hmm. And then one other thing that I wanted to say also about the, this isn't fair thing, you know, I think as Americans, maybe not, not just Americans, but especially Americans, anybody that's not living in a third world country, I feel like that's a huge one. You know, people come from meager you know, uh, meet your way of life. Yeah. This isn't fair, I don't think, is quite the same concept. You right. know, how is it fair for me to be born into a well-off American household and have everything I really right. desire and earn it and some poor child in, I don't know, Africa is born into squalor and, you know, yeah. I, Nothing is fair. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. nothing is ever fair. Yeah. And it's all you can do is turn to the fact that we're all part of God's plan. Yeah. Um, boy, lot there. Let me tackle that in reverse order. Again, let me let me appeal to the Old Testament. What was fair about God choosing Israel and not choosing Samaria? What was God fair about God choosing Israel and not choosing the Egyptians? Because the same argument has to be applied evenly across scripture or it's a bad hermeneutic. It's a bad way to read scripture. Second point, God is love. I agree God is love. Scripture teaches that. But do you think that that is the whole of God's character? Brian, if I were to define you by saying Brian is bearded. And that is all you ever need to know about Brian. That is the whole of his character. I would be missing some really great stuff, right? He's male, he's a father, he's a Christian, he's an IT guy, he's got this axe that he got for as a wedding present that he threw against the board last weekend. There's lots of valuable information that we miss if we reduce him to being bearded. He is bearded, but that is not the whole of who he is. Yes, God is love. He is also anger, wrath, jealousy, justice, perfection, father, sustainer, creator. You get my point. Do any of you want to be defined by a single characteristic? 
Well, God does not want to be defined by a single characteristic. He absolutely is the perfect definition of love. But let's appeal to John 3.16. How then can he choose some and not others when John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his son? Well, if you read that Greek, if you understand what that language is saying, the, world, the word world means his creation. God loved what he created, including the human beings that inhabited it, so he provided a way to help them out of their own decision, tracing all the way back to the third chapter of the book of Genesis. When, when Adam, through us, as the first representative of man, was cursed for all creation for choosing against God, God sets in motion a plan through his son Jesus that some might come to him down the road, okay? Uh, Andy, you made one other point, and I can't remember. Oh, the idea of, of, of fair is a relative term. What is fair to me is not fair to a kid who's 12 years old being sold into slavery in the Sudan. We have two radically different definitions of fair. Catherine. Just a question. Um, I'm still trying to sort this all out. Sure. You're in the right place. There's someone, let's say, then if this person isn't chosen to be in the kingdom, does that person ever come to a point where they have a choice to want to be with God? Mm -hmm. Because if they're not chosen by God, is that mine ever going to... You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I'm trying to decide if I can answer it without giving away the big verse at the end of the sermon. Let me say it this way. <clears throat> Imagine a conveyor belt heading from this side of the, the, the sanctuary to this side. And at the end of the conveyor belt, it just ends and it drops into a fiery pit. And we are bottles. Like Imagine like a, a opening of Laverne and Shirley, right? We're bottles heading this way. We, we are bot we, we, the bottle has no ability in and of itself to hop off the conveyor belt and say, I'm saved, right? Only an outside force can save the bottle from its destiny. The bottler who owns the factory has absolute dominion to save some and not others by their own goodwill, by what makes glory come to them. I don't like this bottle, I like this bottle, whatever. That whole thing. We are destined for destruction should God not intervene. Destined. If Jesus doesn't come, everyone, everyone ends up at the bottom of that pit. No one has opportunity to come out. None. That's fairness. What God does is something crazily supernatural to intervene. Kathy's question is, well, for those who aren't saved, what is their nature? What's the point of their existence then, right? Is well, do they ever have an opportunity to accept it because God did not chosen? Let me go a step further. That's what I think I'm trying to say. No, I think you're doing a great one, but let me, let me, let me make your question even harder for me to answer than it already is because it's a very good question. Um, what about those who are born like people that you work with that have mental limitations? Can they really wrap their mind around what it means to be Christian. What about infants who die before they're born? What about infants who die shortly after they're born, who, who don't have the capacity to understand what happens to them? Would you like an answer to that question? I think it'd be fair of me to have to answer that question. Right. Here's my short answer, and it is a short answer. I don't know. I know that whatever God decides about them, it's perfect and it's right and it's holy and it's worthy to be praised. I am very certain my father is not saved. He died four years ago. 
I am somewhat cautiously optimistic that my mom was. They died about nine months apart. But I stand here before you and tell you, it A, breaks my heart that I know my dad is not in heaven right now. And it B, warms my heart to know that God is sovereign over those events. That is where I place my trust. Dan quoted Ecclesiastes 3 in Sunday school this morning. For God has... Um, uh, Dan, help me out. Set eternity, in the Set eternity in the hearts of men. Everything, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, God has set eternity in the hearts of men, except no one knows what God will do from beginning to end. Men does what he does that, that men would fear before him. This is all over scripture. This is not an isolated thing where Paul was on this kick about God chooses people. No, this has been going on throughout the entirety of scripture. I think the question that we wrestle with, that we struggle with, is then why does God do it this way? Why does he choose to do it this way? Why not just save everybody? Or why not just leave all of us to ourselves? Why not everyone to destruction? Or why not everyone to glory? Well, it's because of what he says in verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which... He made us accepted in the beloved. And I want to draw a very clear connection here between two words, grace and accepted. These are the two indelible, linked in eternity words that we cannot get around. Let me offer a paraphrase and then Larry, I'll get to your question. God does all of this so that his grace is glorified. And it is only through grace that we become accepted by God. Every human being who has ever lived glorifies God at the end of their life. You, me, Hitler, the Apostle Paul, Bin Laden, LeBron James, everyone. We either glorify God through his perfection at judgment, getting exactly what we deserve, hell. You want fair, hell is fair. Or there is another way to glorify God. We can also glorify his grace in which we receive exactly what we don't deserve and through the blood of Jesus receive eternal life in heaven with the fellowship of the church. More objections. Larry, your question before I move on. Well, can a person reject God? He's not called. He's not yeah. really rejecting God. Yeah. Um, Yes, that's a great question. Can a person reject God if he's not really called? Is that rejecting God? Yes, because the whole of, remember we talked about the conveyor belt? Since Adam, since Adam's decision, our destiny is we hate God. We love ourselves. We hate God. We will not choose him. Unless God ignites something in us to change our minds, we will never choose God. So it is a rejection of God. And the reason we're guilty of that rejection is because of what Jared said this morning in Sunday school. Paul makes the argument, it's clear that God exists and we actively suppress the truth because of our own unrighteousness. There's no one neutral. There hasn't been anyone neutral since Adam and Eve. After Adam and Eve's sin, we inherit that sinful nature. Brandy, I don't want to forget your question. I always believed that we were all predestined to be saved, and it was our choice whether we accepted that. I'm, I'm hearing this now, uh, like my brother, I... I have tried to convert him or to have him accept God, and he's rejected it over time. So should I stop trying? And he's predestined by God right. Right. to go to 
Essentially, the question you're asking is, is predestination double? Are people predestined to hell and predestined to heaven? Well, the answer is not really because God doesn't need to predestine anyone to hell. That's where we're going. God only needs to predestine those if, if the default setting of hell is not applicable. The question of whether or not you should share with your brother is about this. Is your brother still willing to have the conversation with you? Is your brother still willing to entertain you? If he is, then keep engaging him. If he's not, you are not under obligation to continue to pound your head against a brick wall because he's not seeing the truth. It may be that somebody else uh, is going to be the person to keep pick up that torch. It may be that your brother is not going to be saved. It may be that somebody completely off the map is going to come along and put the pieces together of the things that you and others have been saying to him. You don't know and I don't know if he's elect or not. You don't know and I don't know if he's predestined. And we have a charge to take the gospel to the ends of the earth that we must fulfill. Okay? Um, good. Andy? Uh, just a little something to build off what Larry said, too. You know, if the Bible is full of men and women who try to reject their call. Sure. If it's God's will, he's going to make it happen. Jonah? Jonah yeah. is a perfect example of that. You know, basically everyone from these stories in, you know, the Old Testament, whatever, they didn't want to do what God wanted them to do. He made sure it was going to happen. He's like, it's my way or the highway. This is how it's going to be. It's my will, whether you like it or not. Who did Moses think should lead Israel? Yeah, why? Better speaker, more eloquent, right? And God said, no, nope, I'm choosing you. What was Paul on his way to do when he was confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus? Yeah, basically kill and persecute Christians. Definitely, we would agree, not a Christian agenda, an anti-Christian agenda. So when God presents himself to you, his call is irrevocable. It's absolutely irrevocable. So I want to go a little bit of a different direction with this next set of objections, because maybe you've thought of this, maybe you haven't. But here's a great question. Well, isn't this just egotistical and selfish for God to do all of this, just so glory is brought to his name? What kind of arrogant God do we serve that just says, ha, 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 this pleases me, make it so. I mean, does this not just seem like one of these cheesy old, uh, you know, Clash of the Titans movies, like the Harry Hamlin one from the early 80s? Does this not just seem like these gods are just really, really egotistical, humanistic? I mean, that, that, that seems to be what's going on here. Oh, good. Mark has an answer for us. Wonderful. I'm not sure this is the answer, and I would normally put this with about 30 disclaimers, not least of which is the lightning that's about to come down the strike. All right. <laughs> Almost every translation that I've read of uh -huh. these passages the phrase, in accordance to the pleasure of his will, is offset by either uh, commas or maybe independent. So you can skip right from um, through Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of his grace and leave out that. Okay. And what, what effect would that have? Uh, and what effect would that have? Say God is not acting as egotistical or in accordance to his pleasure. Okay. It's just saying God did this. Okay. Period. Deal with it. Way. Yeah. Deal with it. Okay. Let me, I think that's an interesting way to answer it. Let me answer it a totally different way. He absolutely did this to the pleasure of his goodwill. And it would be arrogant and egotistical if he were human. But he's not. He's God. He's 
perfect. He never makes a wrong decision. Nobody has ever accidentally gone to heaven or accidentally gone to hell. It is an impossibility to serve a perfect and sovereign God and then claim that at some point in the history of his design on the universe, something went out of his plan. If there is one quark, any science nerds here? Bree's gone. Any science nerds can tell me what a quark is? Can anyone here tell me what a quark is? Brian. Nerd. The, the, the you think, yeah, it's the smallest. The atom is small. The, the, L, the electrons and protons are small. The electrons and protons are made up of quarks. Yeah. Quark is, as much as we know, it is, theoretically speaking, the smallest thing in the universe. If there is one quark named Bob who decides to do his own thing, I'm going this way. I don't care what God's will is. God ceases to be God. If we say that he is sovereign, key word in sovereign again, reign, he is reigning sovereignly over everything. He is in control of everything. So my answer to that question is, anything that doesn't aim to bring glory to him is sinful. He created us. He knows that what we need is more of him. Even if we don't think that's the case, he's right, we're wrong, and Mark's words, deal with it, okay? So we arrive then at the $26 million question. Why then does God choose some and not others? Why does he not choose everyone? My response is this. Oh, Jared, you're going to answer it. Great. Because not everyone is going to choose him. No. No. Because now what you're saying is he's predestined as a reaction to our decision. No. 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 Okay. I'm misunderstanding you. No. He doesn't choose everyone because that, that basically it weakens oh, I see what, you're saying. what Christ did on the cross. Yeah. Because if he just says, okay, Christ, like some, some creeds, you hear this, God chose universalism. God, Jesus died for everyone. So everyone's going to eventually get to heaven anyhow. We just get there in different ways. Right. That's where this whole multiple right. parallel. To which we say, what's the point of the cross? Exactly. Right. It, it, it will, I think it waters it down. It mm -hmm. makes it... I don't know. It's just well, at the very minimum, at the very minimum, it's inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, where Jesus is constantly choosing, come to me, choose me, abide in me, remain in me, and that's the theme of the teaching throughout the rest of the New Testament. He even says that when he selected the disciples. Absolutely. There's 70 there. Absolutely. He gives one servant, all the 12 leave. Exactly. And he goes, I chose Right, and where, where shall I go? And you can, if you guys want to get into the language of choosing, if you're not sure about this whole choosing predestined thing, I've got about 85 verses in the New Testament for you to look up, but, but I'll just hit you with a few off the top of my head. Um, the apostles asked Jesus, well, who then can come to me after the rich young ruler goes away? And he, say, he says, camel through the eye of the needle, right? Well, who then can come to God? And he says, with man, it's impossible. Only through God can someone come. Later, and as an extension of that same conversation, the apostles ask him, well, how do we get saved? How do we endure? And Jesus' response is, no one whom the Father has given to me can be snatched from my hand. He doesn't say no one who chose my Father can be snatched from my hand. He says no one whom the Father has given to me can be snatched from my hand. So here's my answer. My answer is, why does he choose anyone? When you say, why, does, why doesn't he choose everyone? I say, why does he choose anyone? And I want 
to demonstrate this. And here's, here's the verse. I'm not thinking that this passage in Romans is going to answer all of your questions. But I do think it's a very not talked about passage that talks a lot about design. I'm sorry, designer and designed, creator and creation. This is what Paul says. I'm going to break it into two passages for you here. Paul answers this very question of men's destinies. The question that Kathy brings up, Paul speaks directly to it. Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Basically, why does God still destine, why does God still send people to hell? Who's at fault? Who can resist God? Paul answers that. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to the thing who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make, and here's the key, and this will blow your minds if you've never considered it. Paul says flat out, he makes one vessel for honor and he makes another vessel for dishonor. One vessel amplifies his grace, the other vessel amplifies his justice. So you're saying that God creates people whose destiny is hell. And my answer is, that is exactly what scripture teaches. If you don't believe me, keep reading. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Let me stop right there. Let me paraphrase that. What if God, wanting to demonstrate how powerful he is, puts up with these vessels prepared for destruction, tolerates their ungodliness for ages and ages and ages to show his own mercy and sovereignty, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even with us whom he called, not the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. Paul asks a fascinating question here. He says, what if the reason God did this was because he's demonstrating how special you are because you were chosen? Against the backdrop of the billions who will reject him by their natures forever, he changed your nature. The result that I beg and plead and pray with you to have when you leave here this morning is this mind-melting experience where you say, my God, I have been asking the wrong question my entire life. I have been asking, why isn't mom or dad or brother or sister or neighbor or coworker saved? Instead of asking the much more important question, to what end did he save me? Why am I saved? I am certain I do not deserve this. I am certain I am not worthy of this. I am certain I can never earn it. I am certain I can't live up to it. I am also certain I can't sustain it. If salvation is left up to me, I will blow it. I'm sure of it. But because of his good pleasure and will, he chose me with purpose, wanting, wanting to make known the riches of his glory on the vessel of mercy. You, me, we are vessels of his mercy. We are the demonstrable living proof of his mercy. When we go to someone and share the gospel message with them, we are saying, I am evidence that it works because I used to be destined to hell. Now I am called to salvation in Christ for eternity. Paul 
is answering the same questions that we're asking 2,000 years after he wrote this letter. There's nothing new under the sun. Humans were able to think and reason at the same level that they're able to think and reason at today. People came up with the same questions that you're coming up with, and he had an absolute answer for them. The question is whether we will accept the answers given in Scripture or whether we will, burn, we, will, we will turn and torque and melt and bend scripture to say something that's a little bit more pleasing to our ear, or, heaven forbid, even worse, whether we will be one of these churches or one of these pastors that just doesn't deal with this passage because it makes them uncomfortable and they're not sure what to make of it. That's not me, that's not us. That's not what we're gonna do. We're gonna deal with difficult passages. We're gonna wrestle with them. We're gonna come to conclusions. And maybe our minds change at some point. Maybe our theology shift. But let all of that be rooted in an argument born of and living in Scripture. Let me pray for us and we'll have some final Q&A. Precious Heavenly Father, we have dealt with some very, very, very difficult and heady stuff here today. But Lord, I will say this. My own personal testimony is that I grew up thinking I knew you for 15 years. And shortly after I actually became saved, I discovered what Scripture actually says about how salvation works, that it was not my decision that my decision to receive you was simply my response to your irrevocable call because you had chosen me before the foundations of the world according to your good pleasure. Once I understood that, Lord, so many other things fell into place. My mind, my heart, my peace, my growth, all continued at an accelerated rate. And for you, Lord, I sing all praise and I thank you. Lord, let us hear what your scriptures are actually saying to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastorally, I have to close with one statement, and this is it. This idea of soteriology, are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminian? Do you believe that you choose God? Do you believe that God chooses you? This is definitely secondary theology. I have worshiped with, I have had church members that do not agree with this position um, on salvation, even though I am absolutely convinced this is what scripture says. It's not something that should part our ways. When we get to heaven, if I believe in predestination and you believe in something else, when we get to heaven, we're gonna look at each other and one of us is gonna say, oh yeah, you were totally right, okay? So the point in me teaching this is saying of secondary doctrine, of secondary issues, this is one of the most beneficial ones to work out. Once you understand how you were saved and how you are sustained, it causes a, a myriad of domino effects, including your own um, appreciation for the things that God has done for you to amplify. Okay, with that being said, do we have any final Q&A or thoughts? Rhonda, we'll start with you. Well, just because we don't know who God has chosen does not let us off the hook from the parable of the sower. Correct. Because we are <clears throat> charged with the great commission mm -hmm. to spread the word no matter who we encounter, it's not our right or responsibility to qualify the ground we're dropping seed on. Perfectly said. We do not pre-qualify mission fields. We do not say, well, let's go to these people because they'll probably be the most likely to respond to the gospel. Um, do you know that more missionaries are sent from other countries to America than vice versa? Other countries look at us and feel bad for us because we are in a systemic cultural Christianity. People sit in our churches every Sunday and they think they understand the gospel and they think they've given their lives to Christ, but the rest of the world knows better because we live such a charmed life to get back to what Andy was saying about fair being a relative term. Jamie. Yeah, you made the comment about the fact that we should be asking the question why would God choose anyone? Mm -hmm. 
one of the things that we have to remember is, is that we were not part of the original chosen. Right, like, as, as Gentiles. Gentiles yep. We were not. Like, the fact that we are even in the position that we are in in this building today is in and of itself yep. part of God's predestination. Mm -hmm. Huge. Yeah, huge, huge. We're not Jewish and we weren't part of the Israelites. We're not mm -hmm. part of the 12 tribes, but yet here we are yep. studying this information yep. and, and believing in it. And if you follow back what scripture actually says in terms of prophecy, we only have an entranceway because the Jews by and large rejected. If the Jews by and large just understood that Jesus was the Messiah, there would be no new Israel. New Israel is, is the church, right? That wouldn't exist. So yeah, it's a really good point. We're, we're doubly in debt because we're adopted sons and daughters. We're not hereditary sons and daughters. Dan. What I've come to realize as a follower of Christ is he is holy, he is omniscient, he is omnipresent. Uh, he, he knows everything, he is God. Uh, and I know me, that I have been unfair, I've been unjust, I've been wrong, I've screwed up. And then when I come to that debate in my mind, is God fair? I don't know how I can get to that place. How would you even qualify? Because I am, I, I'm a mess. Right. And then out of my mess, I think I'm going to give God this message that you're not fair. <laughs> That's a good point. Like, we're not qualified to say what, what fairness actually is, right? We're not. Brian? In my head, I keep coming back to Job. And the answer that God gave him, why, 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 why this happened to God? And God says, just comes down and says, does it matter? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Do you know this? Do you know that? I'm so much bigger than you. Just understand there's a reason. I'm doing something. Trust me. I know you don't like it. Please trust me. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely a thousand percent correct, Brian. Job's, Job gets his answer. His answer is, Job, you're not God. I did these things because I am. You either trust that, you love that, or you don't. What's your, what, what are you going to do with that? It's just huge. Tom. A couple things. Um, if Timothy, I can't remember the first or second. I say God desires that no man. Correct. Were you here last week? No. Okay. Great, great question. I'll answer that. No, and my second thought is. We have a tendency to bring God down to our level. That's what we do as, as man, you know. That we I'm, humanize him. I'm going to choose white, I'm going to choose Richard, and I don't choose mom. Right. That God is spirit, so right. I like to think, well, you know, there's a third way. Right. right. That we don't understand because it says our intelligence is not that. All right, let me deal with the Timothy passage first. For I do not desire that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. Okay, words of God, right? That's, that's, what, that's what Paul's saying, this is what God's mind is. So then if God is all powerful, how come not everyone's saved according to that passage? Because we know not everyone is saved if we just read scripture, right? Well, the answer is very simple. This has to do with those of you who are maybe wrestling with the concept of what is free will? What is free will then? Do I not have freedom? You do have free will, but it's limited by your nature. Um, I used the silly example last week of saying, I love to play basketball and I'm five foot nine on a good day. I can't just choose by free will to say, you know what, today I'm 6'10". I'm gonna go out and dominate at Brookside, right? I can't, I can't do that. Nor, more, nor, nor anymore can I jump off the top of a tall building and at the last second before I'm about to die and be crushed by the impact of physics, say, mm, I have free will. I, I decide that I am above and beyond my own nature. I'm just gonna float and then land softly. 
In the same way, Paul tells us very, 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 very clearly in the New Testament, it is impossible for us to choose God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, for they have all turned away. They have all become unprofitable. There is no one holy, no, not one. So the question becomes, how then can we choose? We can't unless God quickens our hearts and predestines us according to his good pleasure before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything right or wrong, and we have that sweet moment of surrender. For some of us, that's a very conscious decision. For me, 19 years old, standing in a blizzard about two miles from here, right outside of Amstutz Hall on AU's campus. For some of you, you grew up in Christian homes. You can't remember not believing. It doesn't mean that your salvation is any less than mine is. It just means that God woke these truths in you and you necessarily responded to that call in the affirmative. So we have to be very careful about distinguishing between God's will. God does not desire. I always use these terms. There's a difference between God's desire and God's will. His will comes to pass or he's not God. His desire may be, Tom, I don't wish that you would sin. But Tom, I bet you sin. And that doesn't mean that you're more powerful than God, does it? No. We still have freedom of some of these things. What, we, what I would argue our nature cannot do is choose God. We can't. We are, we are scarred and we are, we are laid onto a track by Adam's curse. We cannot choose God. That is as absurd as me deciding I'm going to be six foot ten today. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Pastor Ben Roby and Heritage Baptist Church. We welcome your feedback or questions. You can find us online at hbc-ashland.com or connect with us on Facebook. Please feel free to share this message, but we do ask that you not edit the content in any way. Again, we're so glad you joined us today. Have a great week.